I'm actually a bit humbled to be sitting up here instead of in my usual place over there just listening quietly. But I am eager to speak with you this evening about this topic. Um, Just think for a moment, if you were given the opportunity to to talk with some friends in the Dhamma about compassionate social action, where might you begin? From the title, you'd think that what I had to say might overlap a lot with Brigitte Jelaine's talk last week on the Dharma and social action. I was delighted to hear her and relieved that with all the wise and thoughtful things she said, there's actually very little overlap with what I'd been planning to say this evening. Clearly, this topic is big enough and rich enough that probably every one of us would have our own unique and worthwhile things to say about it. The origins of this talk go back to sometime last summer. As a member of IMSB's board of directors, I've participated for the past past four years in an event now sponsored by the Buddhist Insight Network, in which teachers and board members from different insight meditation groups come together each summer for several days of workshops and discussion around common issues facing sanghas in the West today. I've served as a member of the planning committee for these meetings, uh, and our planning committee always asks about topics people would like to hear about in the future. There was a lot of interest in a session on socially engaged Buddhism, or more broadly on social action informed by Buddhist principles. So it fell to me to plan and uh, lead a session like that this past supper, summer. I got enthusiastic about it then and talked about it with Shaila. She asked me to share it with you, so here I am. The talk has evolved considerably since last summer, but I am indebted to the participants in that conversation, from sanghas from Mexico to Canada and as far east as Washington, D.C., and lots of places in between, for some of the ideas and examples that I'll share this evening. The title I chose is Compassionate Social Action, Responding to the Noble Truth of Suffering. The fact of suffering is the first noble truth. The remaining noble truths address the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path leading to the end of suffering. According to the suttas, we should strive to deeply understand the first noble truth of suffering. We are also called upon to abandon the cause of suffering, which is clinging, to realize the end of suffering, which is liberation or nibbana, and to cultivate the path leading to the end of suffering, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. But just the first noble truth of suffering is our point of departure for this evening. We all have some intuitive understanding of the connection between compassion and suffering. As Sharon Salzberg explains in her book on loving kindness, the Pali word karuna, compassion, means literally the trembling or quivering of the heart in response to a being's pain. When we understand suffering, when we see it clearly, compassion naturally arises. This is a familiar idea. We see suffering in the world and we feel compassion. But just because the idea is familiar does not mean that it is easy to grasp it fully. From the Intersanga discussion last summer and from my own reading and reflection since then, it's become clear to me that really seeing suffering, really opening the heart to suffering and entering fully into a response of compassion is the work of a lifetime. Bhikkhu Bodhi, whom we know best as the translator of many of the Pali texts, has suggested that the way Buddhist practice is taking root in the West may pose a particular challenge in this regard. In fall of 2007, he published a brief note in Buddha Dharma titled A Challenge to Buddhists, 
in which he begins as follows. Each morning, I check out a number of internet news reports and commentaries on websites ranging from the BBC to Truthout. Reading about current events strongly reinforces for me the acuity of the Buddha's words, the world is grounded upon suffering. Almost daily, I am awed by the enormity of the suffering that assails human beings on every continent, and even more by the hard truth that so much of this suffering springs not from the vicissitudes of impersonal nature, but from the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion raging in the human heart. It seems to me that we Western Buddhists tend to dwell in a cognitive space that defines the first noble truth largely against the background of our middle-class lifestyles. As the gnawing of discontent, the ennui of oversatiation, the pain of unfulfilling relationships, or with a bow to Buddhist theory, is bondage to the round of rebirths. Too often, I feel, our focus on these aspects of dukkha has made us oblivious to the vast, catastrophic suffering that daily overwhelms three-fourths of the world's population. Bhikkhu Bodhi goes on to describe what he calls the hard core of Western interest in Buddhism as the Dharma as the path to inner peace and self-realization. He expresses concern that if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, he says, I am apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and the cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that, in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives, can present only a resigned quietism. He acknowledges that Buddhist meditation practice requires seclusion and inwardly focused depth, but then goes on to ask, wouldn't the embodiment of Dharma in the world be more complete by also reaching out and addressing the grinding miseries that are ailing humanity? I see two parts here to this, two challenges that I'd like to invite you to reflect upon with me this evening. The first challenge is to grasp the enormity of human suffering, to more fully understand that first noble truth. Yes, one important aspect of dukkha, of suffering, is the fact that our daily pleasures are fleeting and discomforts are unavoidable. But dukkha also extends to grinding poverty, to war, famine, and pestilence, to natural disasters, and to man-made disasters. These are all sources of profound suffering on a much larger scale. The second challenge is to strive to respond to suffering with vigorous, compassionate social action. Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote in that same brief note in Buddha Dharma, I know we engage in lofty meditations on kindness and compassion and espouse beautiful ideals of love and peace, but note that we pursue them largely as inward, subjective experiences geared toward personal transformation. Too seldom does this type of compassion roll up its sleeves and step into the field Too rarely does it translate into pragmatic programs of effective action, realistically designed to diminish the actual sufferings of those battered by natural calamities or societal deprivation. In the rest of my time this evening, I'm going to spend just a few minutes on each of these two pieces of the challenge, then share some thoughts about ways we can begin to respond, to cultivate a deeper and more encompassing understanding of the first noble truth, and then also to act upon that deeper understanding. I plan to leave some time at the end of the evening for some discussion. So, how do we understand suffering? 
The Buddha explained suffering in his first famous discourse at Varanasi, setting in wheel the motion of the setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering, union with what is displeasing is suffering, separation from what is pleasing is suffering, not to get one what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. This may sound familiar. We all know it at some level, but the universality of suffering is difficult to grasp. We're really not equipped psychologically to grasp suffering intuitively on even a modest scale, let alone a global scale. Barbara Kingsolver makes this point eloquently. In her book, High Tide of Tucson, she writes, the power of fiction is to create empathy. It lifts you away from your chair and stuffs you gently down inside someone else's point of view. A newspaper could tell you that 100 people, say, in an airplane, or in Israel, or in Iraq, have died today. And you can think to yourself how very sad, and then turn the page and see how the wildcats fared. But a novel could take just one of those hundred lives and show you exactly how it felt to be that person rising from bed in the morning, watching the desert light on the tile of her doorway and the curve of her daughter's cheek. You could taste that person's breakfast and love her family, and sort through her worries as your own, and know that a death in that household will be the end of the only life that someone will ever have, as important as yours, as important as mine. King Casalver goes on to write, Confronted with knowledge of dozens of apparently random disasters each day, what can a human heart do but slam its doors? No mortal can grieve that much. We didn't evolve to cope with tragedy on a global scale. Our defense is to pretend there's no thread of event that connects us, and that those lives are somehow not precious and real like our own. It's a practical strategy to some ends, but the loss of empathy is also the loss of humanity, and that's no small trade-off. In a 1999 book, for the time being, Annie Dillard offers a similar sort of observation, a bit more lightheartedly. She tries to help us understand the humanity of the Chinese nation as follows. There are 1,198,500,000 people alive now in China. To get a feel for what that means, simply take yourself, in all your singularity, importance, complexity, and love, and multiply by 1,198,500,000. See, nothing to it. (laughs) I've actually taken these two last literary quotations from a scientific article published in 2007 by Professor Paul Slovic of the University of Oregon in the journal called Judgment and Decision-Making. Slovic writes about what he calls psychic numbing in response to information about overwhelming suffering. He draws on a large body of psychological research to argue for a dual process theory of thinking. One way of thinking seems natural, intuitive, and automatic. It is largely nonverbal, or if it's if supported by verbal thought, it's more narrative than rational, relying on stories not on logical arguments. The other way of thinking may seem less natural. It's rational, analytic, relying on abstract symbols, words, and numbers to represent reality. We might refer to the first way of thinking as experiential, and the second way as analytical. The more intuitive, experiential system gives us our moral intuition and prompts us to act. I can actually describe a substantial portion of Slovak's 
argument from that article in a way that sounds a lot like it's taken from the chain of dependent origination in Buddhist philosophy. Here's my paraphrase of what Slovak says. With the direction of attention, there is perception, which gives rise to feeling, either positive or negative. Feeling leads to desire, prompting action. We mostly rely on this first way of thinking to guide our day-to-day choices and behavior. Doesn't that sound like the chain of dependent origination, at least part of it, for, for those of you who have done the sutta study? One function of the second analytic mode of thinking is to monitor the impulses toward action that arise in that first system, although this monitoring is often rather lax. But the second analytical system does not directly support the response of compassion. That's why when we get fund appeals from organizations like Second Harvest Food Bank or the Stanford Children's Hospital, they come with pictures and stories of individual people, often children, representing those whom our donations can help. The heart is not moved by dry statistics about human suffering. It is moved by stories. Let me turn now to the second of my two challenges, cultivating a vigorous, active kind of compassion that, as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, rolls up, rolls up its sleeves and steps into the field. It seems clear from the suttas and other texts in the Pali Canon that compassion must find expression in action. Shortly after the Buddha's enlightenment, Reflecting on the Dhamma he had discovered, he faced a choice whether to dwell at ease in seclusion or to step out and share his teachings. It was out of compassion for the beings in the world that he chose the path of action, entering into the world and devoting his life to sharing the wisdom that he'd found. Brigitte Jelaine told a story last week making it very clear that monks were not supposed to just stand by idly while the hermitage burned. I want to relate a brief story along similar lines from the Vinaya, the Buddhist book of discipline, of a time when the Buddha was touring the monk's quarters accompanied by the venerable Ananda. They came upon a monk who was very sick with dysentery, unable to care for himself, lying fallen in his own excrements, as the text says. The Buddhist told Ananda to go get water, and together they bathed the monk and helped him onto a couch and tended to his needs. Earlier in the day, the other monks had just passed the sink bunk by and left him going out in their alms rounds. Shortly thereafter, the Buddha gave the monks a stern teaching, asking, If you monks do not tend one another, then who is there who will tend you? Whoever monks would tend to me, he should tend the sick. That phrasing may have a familiar resonance from other spiritual traditions. Brigitte Jolaine spoke last week of the fierceness of social action. Likewise, Sharon Salzberg explains, compassion is not at all weak. It is the strength that arises out of seeing the true nature of suffering in the world. Compassion allows us to bear witness to that suffering, whether it is in ourselves or others, without fear. It allows us to name injustice without hesitation and to act strongly with all the skill at our disposal. Bhikkhu Bodhi has written that the Buddha's mission The reason for his arising in the world was to free beings from suffering by uprooting the evil roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. These sinister roots don't exist only in our own minds. Today they have acquired a collective dimension and have spread out over whole countries and continents. To help free beings from suffering today, therefore, requires that we counter the systemic embodiments of greed, hatred, and delusion. So, What steps can we take to help us grow toward a fuller understanding of suffering 
and a more vigorous response of compassionate social action. First, I believe we must remain mindful of our own response to the suffering we see. Suffering is hard to face. The journalist Samantha Power, writing about our society's muted response to genocide and other atrocities, suggests that we simply cannot wrap our minds around these kinds of realities, and so we retreat into what she calls the twilight between knowing and not knowing. It's all too easy to avoid seeing suffering on a massive scale. Paul Slovic, from that same 2007 article, quotes some statistics that are a little out of date by now, but I doubt the picture's changed much. During all of 2004, ABC News allotted a total of 18 minutes out of its nightly news ca- newscasts to the genocide in Darfur. NBC had only five minutes, and CBS had only three minutes. We turn away because seeing suffering causes us to sorrow. As Barbara Kingsolver asked, what can a human heart do but slam its doors? Actually, here I think the Buddhist teachings provide a fuller answer. Feelings of sorrow and helplessness are not the only response possible. In analyzing compassion, the Sudhimaga says that its function resides in not bearing others' suffering. It manifests as non-cruelty, it succeeds when it makes cruelty subside, and it fails when it produces sorrow. Feelings of helplessness, sadness, or pity are not the same as compassion. A wise response to suffering in the world is one that affirms our common humanity and opens the heart in love. In confronting suffering, we can apply our reason, that second analytical way of thinking, to watch and guide our own reactions. We must be gentle with ourselves, treating ourselves with compassion, even as we open the door to a deeper awareness of suffering in the world. We may look then look away, and then look again, perhaps for a little longer. We need to take just one step at a time. Reflecting on my own response to suffering I see, sometimes compassionate and sometimes not, I've been playing with the idea of a sort of compassion horizon. It's easier for me to feel compassion towards people who seem a lot like me in one way or another, and harder to feel compassion towards people who seem very different. It's easier to feel compassion for people nearby, harder to feel compassion for people in distant lands. It's easier to feel compassion for one person at a time, harder to feel compassion for the many. Often what gets in the way of feeling compassion is some story I begin to tell myself, that the cancer patient who is a heavy smoker or a heavy drinker is less deserving of compassion than the one who led a more abstemious life or the children are more deserving of compassion than adults, or seeing a person on the street with a cup and a handwritten sign asking for money for food, I spin out a story in my mind that sometimes leads me to the conclusion that they're deserving of little help, but oftentimes does not. I try, but often fail, to remind myself that it's just a story in my head I don't really know. Sometimes it's easier to feel compassion for animals than for people, Although I'll confess I have made exceptions for certain really annoying animals in our neighborhood. (laughs) Does this idea ring true for you? Reflecting on your own reactions to the human hardship you see and the hardships of other living beings, can you discern the boundaries, the horizons of your own responses of compassion? Can you distinguish the times the heart opens and the times the heart shuts down? By noticing these differences, 
we can begin to work at expanding our compassion horizons a little at a time, making conscious choices to stretch our boundaries. Another way to grow in compassion is to begin to act locally. There is a great deal to be done right here close to home. A couple years ago, the Inside Meditation Center up in Redwood City organized an event they called a volunteer fair to showcase the volunteer involvements of their Sangha members and make everyone more aware of these opportunities. There were five tables with banners above them grouping the volunteer opportunities into five categories. Helping kids included activities promoting mindfulness for school children, mentoring elementary school children in math, or volunteering at a school for dyslexic students. Helping seniors included hospice work and also visiting seniors at a rest home. Brigitte Jelaine spoke last week about this when she mentioned visiting seniors in the facility located right next to the IMC. A third table was responding to crisis, which included volunteering for the Red Cross, prison dharma, or a crisis and suicide prevention hotline, for, as well as PTSD support. Social issues included Buddhist Peace Fellowship, Green Sangha, Economic Justice, and organizations working to promote affordable health care or to promote workers' rights. Finally, the Buddhism category included volunteering for the IMC Sangha, Insight World Aid, or Socially Engaged Buddhism. I believe Mary Bernier would be happy to provide further information. She attends the IMC regularly and she shows up here from time to time. In the inter-Sangha discussion last summer, I heard many more examples. In 2011, Gil Franzdahl and some other Dharma teachers started an organization called Buddhist World Aid. Bhikkhu Bodhi is on their board of directors. Their, their organization supports some local projects as well as one humanitarian project in, in Cambodia. In the category of Buddhist social action, one participant last August spoke passionately about the work of the Alliance for Bhikkhunis. In our own Sangha here at IMSB, we've raised funds to support the Prajnavihar School in Bodhgaya, India. We've also contributed to the annual campaign run by the Santa Maria Urban Ministry to provide backpacks with school supplies for children in San Jose's inner city. In addition to working to expand the horizon of our own responses of compassion and engaging in local action, a third suggestion is what we might call greeting each fellow being. One Tuesday evening a while ago, Shaila described this practice, which may help to strengthen compassion. She suggested that for a day, we try to mentally greet each living being we encounter, thinking something like, Greetings, fellow traveler on this earth, born as I am born, to aging sickness and death. Again, greetings, fellow traveler on this earth, born as I am born, to aging sickness and death. I've tried this and I found it surprisingly powerful, silently greeting people, birds, dogs, cats, insects, each living creature in its own way wishing for happiness. The Dhammapada says most people do not realize all of us here will one day perish, but those who do realize this settle their quarrels peacefully. I don't know if any of you follow Rick Hansen's Jots postings. Jots is just one thing. He recently suggested another practice that seems related to, to Shiloh's greeting each fellow being, which he calls receiving faces. He writes as follows. Walking down a busy sidewalk, standing in an elevator, waiting in line at the deli, people usually don't look very much at the faces around them. And if they look, 
it's briefly and without really seeing. Or we grow familiar with the faces around us each day at home or work and then tune out, make assumptions, or are simply uncomfortable with what we might see, such as anger, sadness, or a growing indifference. With TV and other media, we're also bombarded with so many faces from around the world, it's easy to feel flooded by them and increasingly numb or inattentive. Rick then goes on to suggest the following practical activity. Look at people in passing you do not know, on the sidewalk, in the mall, a restaurant, etc. Try this also with people you interact with, where it's natural to have some eye contact. And experiment with recalling or imagining the faces or seeing them in photos or videos of key people from your past. When you look, don't stare or be invasive. Look with respect. Just take a few extra seconds to get past superficial features, young or old, male or female, stiff or smiling, handsome or not, and take in more of the person. Let him or her come into focus as a unique individual with specific qualities such as weariness, good humor, firmness, residues of anger, kindness, perkiness, hopefulness, looking for things to like in life, etc. In particular, look at and around the eyes and mouth, which are major regions of social signaling in our faces. Let yourself not know about the person, especially with people that are familiar to you. It's okay to note to yourself what you see, stress, kindness, determination, or to reflect a bit, but mainly be like a child looking at the human face for the first time, startled and delighted by its magnificence. Have a sense of receiving, of letting in, of registering the other person in a deeper way than usual. As it happens, let yourself be moved by the experience. As you look in these ways, notice any difficulty with taking in faces which inherently involves opening to others. For example, it could feel a little overwhelming since a face is such an immense, intense stimulus for human beings as a profoundly social species. Or painful longings for more closeness could be stimulated. Help yourself by receiving faces in small doses and by staying centered in yourself here while knowing that the face is over there. And also open to any positive experiences, such as compassion, kindness, humility, connection, or even love that are stirred up by receiving faces. Enjoy these and take them in. They are wonderful and a fundamental, vital, and lovely part of your human endowment. You can find this and a lot more material on Rick Hansen's website at www.rickhansen.net. This is part of the series he calls Just One Thing. Perhaps the most powerful way to cultivate a compassionate response to suffering on a large scale is to mentally unpack the mass of humanity and in your mind's eye imagine just one being's suffering at a time. Mother Teresa said, If I look at the mass, I will never act. If I look at the one, I will. The experiential, feeling, intuitive mode of thinking doesn't process abstract numbers, but it can connect to the suffering of one being at a time. Bhikkhu Bodhi invites us to think in this way about each child dying of hunger in a short video clip explaining Buddhist Global Relief, an organization he was instrumental in helping to establish several years ago. Here's what he has to say. These are Bhikkhu Bodhi's words now. For years as a Buddhist, I've wanted to do something to express compassionate action to translate the high ideals of Buddhism into some type of activity 
that would be directly beneficial to other human beings. I found that a number of my other Dharma friends were also thinking along the same lines. So together we formed an organization that we call Buddhist Global Relief. We considered to find a particular point of focus for this organization, and we decided to make our special mission to provide food relief to those suffering from hunger and from chronic malnutrition. Every year, 10 million people die from hunger and from hunger-related diseases, and of those 10 million people, more than half of them are children. That is 5 million to 6 million children dying every year from hunger. This works out to a child every five seconds. And what's also remarkable is that so little is needed to actually alleviate this hunger. One American dollar can go so far in providing food aid to those suffering from malnutrition. Buddhism teaches us how to develop our capacities for wisdom and also how to develop a heart of great loving kindness and great compassion. But in today's world, it's not enough just to be content with developing love and compassion as inward qualities. We also have to be able to transform these inner states into practical actions that bring real relief to the suffering of other living beings. Through our organization, Buddhist Global Relief, we are seeking to provide aid to people throughout the world, and especially in the Buddhist countries of Southeast Asia, who are suffering from food shortages and from malnutrition. We are at present an all-volunteer organization, and so welcome donations and help from anybody who wishes to help. If you want to learn more about our organization, please go to our website, www.buddhistglobalrelief.org. Thank you for your attention, and may all blessings be with you. So, I've offered several suggestions for expanding the heart to grasp suffering and respond with greater compassion. One might reflect on the boundaries of one's compassion, the horizon beyond which the response of compassion seems muted. One might volunteer in various ways to meet the needs of the local community. One might try greeting fellow beings or receiving faces. Finally, one might try strive to try to unpack the mass of suffering taking in the pain of individual beings and experiencing the compassionate quivering of the heart. These are practices. We practice because we need the practice. So if you're so moved, you might form an intention to do something definite this coming week, perhaps trying out one or another of these ideas, perhaps reaching out in a specific way to a specific individual, contacting a friend or relative, donating to a particular cause, or volunteering to make a difference. Thank you. Let's spend just a few minutes in silent meditation and then take time for some discussion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.